0: Musical linguistic nope. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And to begin today's program, I would like to thank some of our fellow saloners who either bought a copy of the audiobook version of my novel, The Genesis Generation, or who made direct donations to help offset some of the expenses here in the salon. And those generous souls are Lucas R., Alexander M., Corey P., Ian S., longtime friend of the salon, Joshua W., Eric H., and regular monthly donor, Mark C. And I thank you all ever so much for your continuing support of the salon. Now, as you may recall, a couple of podcasts ago, two of our fellow saloners had some things to say about synchronicities. And uh, so now here is one more. I just uh, had decided that today's podcast would include an interview that Peter Gorman did with the poet Allen Ginsberg. And so I was setting up the directory that I put things into for each week's program, and I opened my email uh, client in order to get a message that I'm going to be reading at the end of today's podcast. Well, my email program came up and automatically checked for new mail, and a message came in from someone whose name I knew quite well, but who I'd never heard from before. As it turns out, Dennis McKenna gave her my email address, and suggested that she ask if I would help promote her Kickstarter project, which I'll do at the end of this podcast. But first the coincidence. The person who sent me the email, I discovered just a few minutes later, was actually mentioned by Alan Ginsberg in the interview that we're about to hear. And her name is Joanna Harcourt Smith. And as you know, Joanna was with Timothy Leary at the time he was arrested, uh, or I guess I should say abducted, uh, right after they landed in Afghanistan when Leary was on the Lamb. But uh, I'm way off track to my introduction to today's program, so let me get uh, back to that. Uh, But you have to admit that it was uh, an interesting little synchronicity to receive an email from someone whose name then came up in an interview that was recorded about 15 years ago. Now before I tell you a little bit about the interview we're about to hear, it just occurred to me that some of our uh, younger fellow Saloners may not be so familiar with the work of the great American poet Allen Ginsberg, who for me has uh, been a permanent feature of most of my adult life. It was in October of 1955 that Ginsberg read his famous poem, Howl, which even if you hadn't heard of it, uh, you most likely heard its opening lines, which are, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix. <laughs> you got to love it, don't you? Well, Ginsberg then goes on to uh, talk of the angel-headed hipsters who we now think of as the beat generation. Well, that poem didn't directly make it to the small Midwestern town where I was living at the time, but on our senior class trip to New York and Washington, I joined a few brave friends and we went down to Washington Square and spent the evening in a dingy little coffee shop, listening to uh, mostly pretty bad poetry and drinking some really horrible coffee. But on that night, one of the poets uh, got up on the stage and read that first part of Ginsberg's poem, and I was hooked. The following autumn found me at college, where uh, one of my first purchases at the local bookstore was a copy of Ginsberg's Howl and Kerouac's On the Road. So while hearing Alan Ginsberg telling these stories may not seem all that exciting to some of our fellow slaughters, I do hope that it resonates with you as much as it does with me. And, while there's no date on this tape, uh, I think it's safe to assume that it must have been recorded sometime in the summer of 1996. My reasoning is that they are talking about an August issue of High Times Magazine that was to memorialize Timothy Leary, and uh, of course Timothy Leary died on May 31st of 1996. And as you'll hear, uh, Allen Ginsberg didn't sound uh, all that energetic at the time himself, which isn't really surprising, for, as we know, uh, Allen Ginsberg died in April of 1997. And considering the fact that uh, he'd already suffered two strokes by the time this recording was made, I think it quite remarkable and highly commendable of him to agree to this telephone interview with Peter Gorman. And as you are about to hear, uh, we're going to be treated to the telling of a story by Allen Ginsberg about a psilocybin trip that he took with Timothy Leary and Jack Kerouac. And if you're a historical, psychedelic story junkie like I am, well, (laughs) you're in for a treat. Now, here is Peter Gorman in a phone call to Alan Ginsberg.
1: Hello. Hello, Alan Ginsberg. Yes. Hi, this is Peter Gorman from High Times.
0: Yeah.
1: Hi. Uh, Thanks for for, uh, agreeing to do this. Uh, I don't know if Peter explained. We're just putting together a 32-page kind of a tribute to Tim Leary. Uh, and it's just an insert in the, in the in September's issue, in August issue. And among other things, Marty Lee wrote a history of it. Joe Raskin, who was with the Weather Underground, uh, did an interview with him a couple of weeks ago. Rosemary weighed in with a piece about Milbrook, the Millbrook bust. And now I've called people like Ken Kesey and Albert Hoffman just to have people tell me a story or two about. Tim Leary, that you know, that would draw a better picture for our readers of who
0: you know who the guy really
1: was, as opposed to who we've read he was. Um, Yeah. So I was was hoping that you would do the same. Yeah, and I'm just wondering. I saw him in January. Uh, One thing that was amazing—he was full of uh, spirit and uh, quite uh, uh, tender the illnesses brought out a very tender and affectionate side to him. Uh, and um, I was, uh, he hugged me, uh, I kissed him. And uh, he, he, he was some little twitting me it, I thought, well, I said, I knew I'd turn your gaze at her later. And he said, for you any time. Uh, well Mr. Weil uh, after, we, after Galick took the side of but he said uh, looking out the window on 2nd Street uh, between Avenue A and B he said walking on water wasn't built in a day and uh, then we went on uh, kind of Pilgrimage to various people, Robert Lowell uh, and Barney Rossett and others, distributed a little bit of uh, uh, psilocyte and sat with them. Uh, Lowell was a uh, somewhat gloomy mood, but that, uh I said, uh, as we left after Lowell had come down a bit, he him very little mouth, clear gave him very little amount, but he took a very little mouth clear gave him two minutes, he had to choose him out and uh, 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 those a little gloomy and I said, well, I'm more of a kedomenes of Cocker's old and he said, "Well, I'm not sure of that Barney said, Bomb trip, he said, I paid my dollar, my my psychiatrist fifty dollars an hour to keep me from this from having this kind of a, uh, experience. Um, and, said, and then he said, sent me to do some just the monk. So I delivered it to his house somewhere near near where uh, Lincoln Center is now. And about a week later, I saw him in a five spot and then asked him what he thought of Mary's uh, pill, the psilocybin. He said, got anything stronger. <laughs> and then, then we gave some to Dizzy Gillespie. And I asked him what his reaction was about two weeks later, again at the five spot. He said, anything to get you high, man. <laughs> there was a time the government was uh, had set him up. But the key thing, was uh, the reason they wanted Leary uh, was that he had escaped through the offices of the weathermen, I believe. And the heads of the FBI were trapped because they had been wiretapping the weathermen. And it was illegal for them to do that uh, unless it was an international conspiracy. Moscow Gold. Mm-hmm. And uh, they kept Leary incommunicado around uh, 1975. Was that? I thought he was out by then. It was 70, I thought, or 71 when he fled to Algiers. No, then uh, he fled to years but then they caught him in, in uh, Afghanistan. Yeah. So he was. Uh, they grabbed his passport as he left the plane. The American consul rushed up and grabbed his passport. So he was then the state, uh, without passport and then expelled from Afghanistan to the United States, where he was in jail for quite some time. You have you have all that on record, don't you? Yes. Yeah. So it would be around seventy-four or seventy-five. I think it was 75. Because uh, I got a call from, uh, well, a call from him, actually. Uh, it, it, it was very rare, because hardly anybody had heard from him. It was all through Joanna, who was kind of monopoly on communication. And uh, well, he said he was, living on steel sheets and in solitary. And what they were trying to do, well, she had called and uh, said she wanted to arrange for Larry to get in touch with Bill so the counselor. So I consulted the consular and called her back and said that uh, if they want to get in touch with him, here's his number. Uh counselor had suspected some kind of entrapment, actually, from her. And they never did call him, I guess. Uh, later on, when Leary got out, I was uh, explaining what the problem was there. That the FBI had been wiretapping the uh, weathermen illegally. And they wanted Leary to testify that the weathermen were getting Moscow gold. That money was coming from abroad as part of a big communist conspiracy. Well, as far as he knew, it wasn't. But they were just a domestic uh, uh, domestic dissidents, and uh, so uh, he was. They were keeping him. The, the the government and the FBI was keeping him. in The Feds were keeping him in uh, solitary trying to get him to change his story to testify for the, you know, I think Sullivan or somebody was there, I forgot who, the, uh, in the FBI who was otherwise going to go to jail. And finally, those guys in the FBI did go to jail, maybe felt, I'm not sure. Do you know the story? I, I not all chance. Yeah, you might have to check, fact checkers, check it out. But some, uh, several higher ups, including, I think, Mark Felt, but I'm not sure, did have to go to jail for violating the law and wiretapping when they shouldn't be. And, uh, the people on the left, some of the lawyers, I think, Michael Kennedy, were claiming that Leary had sang, uh, naming names. But uh, Leary's uh, uh, account was that he'd actually uh, uh, refused to cooperate with the government and thus the uh, trial of the FBI people went on and they went to jail. This was at a time when the left was disillusioned with Leary. He had fled with the Weathermen, and they had made him from jail, and they had made him sign a, uh, some kind of a uh, uh, manifesto addressed to me, partly uh, renouncing pacifism, or renouncing nonviolence. They delivered him, of all places, to Aldridge Cleaver, now in Algiers, Algeria. And after a while, Cleaver put him in jail, or arrested him and held him in, in Communicado. Do you remember that? Sure. And years later, they met again in jail, and went over what happened, and it turned out that the FBI, or the CIA, one of the government agencies, had been feeding disinformation to Aldrich creeper saying that Leary was a member of the uh, CIA and was there to, to infiltrate by none other than Millbrook, by none other than uh, uh, Gordon Liddy, who himself later was convicted of all sorts of crimes. Wretched. Yeah, but what's interesting is that uh, in those days, uh, Liddy was uh, constantly raiding Millbrook illegally without warrants. Idiot, he parlayed uh, since illegal, illegal activities and, uh, uh, and reading Milbrook into a White House uh, advisory job. Okay. Thanks. Yeah, do you have enough? Yep. have Yeah. Uh, is it possible for you to send me a little... Uh, i send you a copy and I'll send you a transcript send of everything it, you well, oh, oh, wait, your edited version, yeah. Okay. Both. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, you can send it by fax. Do you have a fax number? 6, 7, 5, 1, 6, 8, 6. Yeah, Then I respond in a day or so. Thank you very much. Yes, yeah, uh, See, if stuff is printed in my name, I get responsible for the syntax. Exactly. And I have a uh, bibliographer who puts all that down, and, and, and it's already a two volume bibliography, which is enormous. So I have to be careful that what I print under my name is what I have edited. Right.
0: Okay. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much. Bye. Before I forget, uh, seeing as how Eldridge Cleaver was mentioned, I probably should remind you that uh, some years ago I discovered an old cassette tape on which Eldridge Cleaver uh, had recorded a personal message to Timothy Leary, and it was uh, several years after they were both out of prison, and uh, actually not too long before both of them died. But if you haven't heard it, you may want to take a listen. It's uh, quite interesting, I think, uh, particularly if you're familiar with some of the history that those two shared. And uh, I'll post a link to it along with the program notes for today's podcast for you to uh, download or listen to if you want. Now, what we're going to hear next is an interview that Peter must have done around the same time with Ramdas, who, as you know, was known as Dr. Richard Alpert at the uh, time he and Timothy Leary were doing research at Harvard, uh, again in Mexico, and eventually at Millbrook in upstate New York. And while the portion of this interview that has survived for us to hear is uh, quite short, it does contain at least one funny psychedelic tale that I think you'll enjoy. So here is Ram Dass speaking with Peter Gorman sometime in 1996.
2: It happens to things that turn out to be issues. I mean, He when he went to Mexico with Frank Barron. He had no intention. I mean, he didn't think about taking mushrooms. And when he got busted with Susan at the border, he certainly had no plan to become a Supreme Court case around marijuana tax laws. And uh, when he got prostate cancer, I don't think he anticipated that, his, that he could turn, turn dying into a uh, such a wonderful theater piece and uh, bring the possibility of a celebratory joy to dying in this culture. And I think he's playing and this one quite beautifully. And the, the all you have to do. I came down maybe two weeks later. On that was swimming in the evening, waiting the next day to go to Dominique, and across the beach came Timothy with all of his merry band. They'd already been thrown out of reason. out with us. said that she bought her two young brothers that just bought a cattle ranch up
0: Unfortunately, that's all there was of this recording, but I still thought it would be fun for you to hear Ramdas telling uh, about a few of his own psychedelic adventures. And in case you haven't been with us here in the salon since the beginning, you may want to go back and listen to one of the podcasts that I did with Gary Fisher. Uh, I think it might have been my podcast number 98. As you know, uh, Gary was part of what Ramdas just referred to as the Advance Party uh, when they relocated to Dominica and Gary has some uh, really funny stories to tell about that little misadventure, including the night that they panicked and buried all of their acid on the beach uh, only to discover the next day that the tide had washed it all out to sea. <laughs> of course, uh, they didn't think of it as all that funny at the time. Now, the concluding interview that I'm going to play for you today is the interview that Peter Gorman conducted with Aldous Huxley's widow, Laura. And if I'm correct, uh, for this interview, we're going to go back a bit further in time to 1993 when Peter was working on the LSD anniversary issue for High Times, uh, the one that you heard about in my previous podcast where he interviewed Dr. Oscar Janiger. And like many of us who were living in Southern California during Laura Huxley's last years, I had several opportunities to uh, visit with her, both in her home and at several public events. In fact, I'll never forget seeing her holding Ram Dass's hand as he sat in his wheelchair while she danced around him, giving him a twirl or two in his chair while a musician played the flute. And if you knew Laura, you can just imagine the twinkle in her eyes, uh, laughing at her own mischief while good old Ramdas sat there very stoically with a benign smile frozen on his face. <laughs> it was uh, one of those snapshots in time that one never forgets. Uh, but I digress once again. So, now we're going to hear some of the uh, stories that Laura always loved to tell whenever she had a chance, and as you will discover, she had a great flair for their telling.
3: Well, I explained yesterday, sort of the project, and I know you've got a lifetime of experience, and um, and uh, unfortunately, we have a very short space for each of you. So... Um, I was hoping you might talk to me a little about your early work before LSD with Aldous and yourself, your own experimentations, and your feeling about about the work you did with psychedelics and then particularly um, how that related to LSD, to be part of this mosaic mm-hmm. that I'm kind of
4: painting. Hold no, that in five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I like but to begin with, uh, yeah, just, uh, uh, I wrote all of this in a book, if, uh, if I am not quite, uh, uh, if I don't give you enough. There, there is a book called uh, This Timeless Moment, where I spoke about uh, all our exper- experimentation and my work before.
3: Who published it, just so I can put it in the introduction? Yes.
4: Uh, it's uh, originally published by Farrar and Strauss. And then there have been many paperback editions. And actually, yes, there is a new edition by um it's this very lovely a lovely edition actually which is uh, so and is published by uh, by, by uh, it's published by yeah the one that is published now is by um, oh yes uh, mercury
3: house mercury house
4: yeah mercury house has a book uh, around now uh, what can I tell you uh, you see, when uh, when I took LSD, and I believe that it was also part of uh, all this experience, is that everything that uh, you know and you don't know, you know a little bit, you have uh, glimpses and things like that, then becomes very real and much more intense.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, when LSD was not the first, you had done mescaline earlier or no?
4: No, no, I just no, no, I just uh, I did my first um, experience report uh, with uh, the
3: Okay. Um, no,
4: I had done none, none of these things before, not at all, uh, before I I met old. Uh
3: huh. And did you? Uh I don't know. I mean, you know, you wrote a whole book. You give me one sentence. Well,
4: yes, I wrote about <laughs> maybe half of the book. It was extraordinarily revealing and uh, and shaking and beautiful and aesthetic and passionate. Uh, everything. When I look to to those to these experiences, I see that they were there in essence before, but they were not manifest. Uh-huh. Uh, all all this quality, they are not, not. They were not quite uh, as deep, as intense, uh, as overwhelming. Uh, I mean, even now, if I just listen to some music, the whole thing comes back in the same character, and yet not as deep. Uh, the compassionate part. I mean, everybody arrives to this. Uh, every, everybody reacts to this in a certain different way my reaction usually is on the aesthetic level and on the compassionate level.
3: And when, when was that first experience? And were you using Sandoz material?
4: Yes, all was gave it to me was before we, we got married. It uh, was in his house. Uh, and it was quite extraordinary because he gave me, after a while, he gave me a little soup, a little vegetable soup to eat. And then um, he wanted to take away the dish that was uh, dirty with his soup. He wanted to wash it. And I wouldn't let him do that because, to me, that was the entire cosmos. This dirty dish became uh, a picture of the cosmos because there were little pieces of vegetable here and there in the round, white place. And it was so beautiful that I would never have washed a dish like that. (laughs) Just to tell you a little example, but uh, that's what I remember now.
3: And um, so what what year was it that you did?
4: Oh, that was um, 55. We made it in 56. That was in 55 in the spring, I think.
3: And so um, I was told, I think Oscar Janiger. Do you know Oscar? Oh, yes. So Oscar said that he had um, uh, administered... LSD to Aldous at one point. Um,
4: no, I don't, no, I think Osman did that. I don't think Oscar. You're thinking about Osman, uh, Humphrey Osman.
3: I could be mistaken. I've been talking uh, to a Humphrey lot of
4: Osman people. Humphrey Osman is the one that came uh, before, when when Aldous was still married to, to Maria, before Maria died, uh, or uh, Osman was invited. If you look in the volume of letters, which is a wonderful volume, the letters of Aldous, uh, they invited, um, Aldous and Maria invited to be their guest and in fact, they did not even know him. But they invited to be their guest. they became close friends, wonderful friends. And he was the one that administered the, uh, to Aldous the uh, LSD, not, uh, not Oscar. Okay. I am aware of. Uh, and, no, and then was not, uh, I think that, uh, that first time, I think it took uh, Mescalina, I'm not sure about that. But it's all written up uh, very precisely. Uh, in the book of course in, in the official biography
3: did you uh, <clears throat> after your first experience how, how many more experiences did you have?
4: all together I have had about six or seven seven and all so together had probably ten in, you know we never took that but uh, once every maybe six months or once every year I mean, something like that uh, again if uh, you want me to be precise you better read the, that volume because in there when i report something by writing i check it again and again and i'm very very precise particularly about this death and about uh, the schedule of that uh, now i can tell you and it is uh, also correct but not as precise if you
3: I, I won't do anything that will uh I won't do anything that calls on precision without double-checking the volume. Yes, yes. I'm just trying to get a little bit of a feel, and I oh, think the, the soup story is, is, is wonderful. Uh, the
4: is, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, one of, it's like everything else, you know, it's like water. You don't uh, survive if you don't have water, but you know very well that they had a uh, way to kill people by making them drink too much water. And so it is with this drug. It's heaven and hell, and it's according to what you do with it. And uh, particularly, if you remember, this was one of the favorite things of all saying that it was a gratuitous grace. A gratuitous grace is neither necessary nor sufficient for salvation. In other words, you can get a gratuitous grace when you are in a state of uh, mortal sin, so to say. And uh, it is what you do with it. I mean, the drugs does not put things in you that are not there. But uh, the trick and the danger is that you never know which one of you, which part of you emerges during a a drug experience. There is many, many people within ourselves. We are a crowd and who is going to come up during those experiences depends on many unknown factor and on some known factor on the set and setting, you must have a great about that, sure. set and setting about the situation of your chemical situation that day or that week, uh, the situation of, yeah, of your liver and of your chemistry. So that there is naturally an element of unknown. If everything was known, then there would be no research. <laughs> we knew exactly what was going to happen so
3: why do it did you ever did you ever take um, use LSD um, after Aldo's death yes can you tell me was it was it a different thing was it a or was it similar I mean yeah, similar in the sense that they're all different see, they, are,
4: they are all similar and they are all different <laughs> yes. And I took it uh, just three or four weeks after he died, because uh, I wanted to take him at the same time when he took it as he was dying, but it's not one person has to be there uh, grounded, you know. <laughs> so I didn't take it as he was dying, but I took it soon after three or four weeks. And uh, at that time, uh, this set setting, by circumstances, absolutely unpredictable, became uh, very trying, I mean somebody died next door where I was, something unexpected like that, so the beginning of the experience was not good at all and then it turned, then it uh, became again very beautiful Uh, I don't know if that was connected by the fact that he was dead and that he was not there again this I don't know, then I had it only once Again after that, and then I stopped because uh, I then became the whole family actually of a child who is now 18 years old, and I didn't take uh, any drugs during this last 18 years, 17 years, because uh, the child uh, I would not ever lie to a child, and if I would tell her I take LSD or something, she would tell her friends, and it would make it very difficult. So I never took it, uh, as I said. In for, for 17 years now she's a teen and you see, she's uh, now out of teenager and she told me now now uh, i'm a teen i can do what i want so i said now karen you are a teen
3: i can do what i want <laughs> <laughs> so will you uh, experiment again if the right uh, time and place
4: so if it is the proper thing you know the ambience and everything um, there is a, there is other things that I have not taken, you know, there is so much uh, since then. So I am a little bit stuck in the, in the 1970 period or so.
3: You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: Well, Laura may have felt that she was stuck in the 1970s, but... The times I spent with her, she didn't seem stuck at all. In fact, uh, one day we even marched together through the streets of Hollywood in a demonstration where we chanted, The violence must cease, our children want peace. And as you know, Laura spent uh, much of her time in the last decade or so of her life working to help underprivileged children get a better start in life. She was a wonderful woman, and uh, largely because of her efforts, Aldous Huxley's name has not yet been buried by the sands of time. So, I hope you enjoyed this little audio collage, and there is more yet to come from the collection of the Peter Gorman interviews that our fellow Saloner Hector Glass digitized for us, including one with Dr. Albert Hoffman and another with Richard Evans Schultes, both of which uh, will be coming your way in the weeks ahead. But first, let's get back to the present, where I've got a few more things to pass on to you. First of all, there's a comment I received that is somewhat typical of several others regarding a cleanup of bad sound quality on some of these old recordings that are floating around these days. And this one came from Paul H., who said, Hi, Lorenzo. A couple of years ago in the salon you spoke of some software or service that you had begun using to improve the sound of some of the old tapes that you were using to make your podcast. I believe it did something like equalize the sound levels coming from the different source mics used in the recording the tapes. Would you be kind enough to post that info here as I am embarking on a project using old cassette tapes and would very much like to clean up the sound of them before finalizing my project. Well, I think what Peter is referring to is the Levelizer, which is free software that is available from Audioplex at uh, www.audioplex.com www.audioplex, uh, slash l-e-v-e-l-i-z-e-r dot And uh, Levelizer is uh, used to eliminate changes in volume, but it doesn't remove the buzz and hum that's often found in these old tapes. And for that, I've been using the open source audio tool that most podcasters use, and uh, that is Audacity. In fact, uh, while you can still hear a lot of hum in the recordings I played today, they've uh, been passed through Audacity's noise uh, removal filters, and uh, believe it or not, uh, quite a bit of noise was actually removed. However, uh, if you remember back several podcasts, I mentioned uh, a couple of files that were beyond the scope of that tool. Uh, However, I'm now happy to report uh, that one of our friends of the salon, Amara Angelica, did a lot of work on the Hoffman and Schultes recordings. And as a result, you're going to be hearing them in future podcasts. Another message I received uh, touches on a topic that also seems to be of great interest to many of our fellow Saloners, and that is finding the others. This one comes from Dave A who writes, Hello Lorenzo, I have recently been feeling a call from the spiritual world. My explorations of various spiritualities has led me to Native American spirituality and shamanism, which feels a lot like coming home. I've been exploring psychedelics for a while now and feel it's time that I sought guidance from more experienced journeyers. Do you know of anyone in the Portland, Oregon or surrounding area that might be willing to be a guide of some sort? Do you have any advice on how I might take further steps to pursue some form of modern shamanism aside from reading books? Well, Dave, as I've said in the past, I'm not really in a position to introduce people to one another, simply because, uh, as I'm sure you are well aware, there's always the problem of not knowing people well enough to be able to recommend them to others. I do know that there is an active group of like-minded people in Portland who stop by one of the medical marijuana dispensaries in town, and I've heard them talking about it in uh, various podcasts on the Cannabis Podcast Network, which you can find at dopetheme.co.uk. But there now uh, happens to be uh, another opportunity for you if you can make it up to Orcas Island, Washington, which uh, you can get to by taking uh, the ferry out of the terminal uh, that's closest to Seattle. As I've mentioned before, uh, Bruce Damer and I will be conducting a workshop there on September 30th, October 1st, and October 2nd, uh, titled Beyond 2012. And the cost of the workshop is only $45, and the profits are going to be sent on to Sasser Shulgin to help offset some of his medical expenses. Now I'm told that if you want to stay at the Outlook Inn on Orcas, which is uh, where the workshop is going to be held, that you need to get your uh, reservation in pretty soon. However, there are also uh, other places to stay on the island as well as uh, a lot of great camping sites. It's uh, really a spectacular uh, place for a workshop, and it also is a place where you'll be able to meet some of the other members of the tribe who happen to live in the Pacific Northwest, uh, as well as salanders from California, Utah, and North Carolina, who I'm told have already bought their tickets for that event. And to purchase your ticket, or for more information about this event, you can go to somaticrevolution.com. That's somatic, Somaticrevolution.com for the details. Now one last announcement before I go, and that is a Kickstarter project that I want to let you know about. And uh, yes, I realize that some of our fellow saloners are again going to be disappointed in that I'm mentioning this project and not their own. But as I've said before, if I announced every Kickstarter campaign that I get requests to support, well, we'd be spending about half of each of these podcasts talking about them. So I've restricted myself to only mentioning those rare projects that will lead to the preservation of some of our community's history that may slip away otherwise. And uh, this project is one of them which uh, I first learned of in an email that read in part, Dennis McKenna gave me your email as I have a Kickstarter project going so that I can publish my book, Tripping the Bardo with Timothy Leary. Well, uh, anything Dennis recommends gets my attention, of course, and the person sending that request was Joanna Harcourt-Smith, who, if you are familiar with the life of Timothy Leary, you already know about, but not directly from her. In fact, I've always wondered why we've uh, heard all of the stories and gossip about Joanna as told by a bunch of men who had their own agendas, and yet the mainstream media never seemed to give her a chance to tell her own side of those historical times when uh, she and Leary were arrested in Afghanistan and, and he was imprisoned in the U.S. I know that I, for one, am most anxious to hear Joanna's side of the story, and so I've made a pledge myself to help get her book published. And if you are also inclined to hear her side of that fascinating story, you can help by going to kickstarter.com and just type Harcourt, H-A-R-C-O-U-R-T, in the search box, and that'll bring up uh, the Tripping the Bardo with Timothy Leary link. And uh, I'll also put a link to that Kickstarter campaign along with the program notes for this podcast. Well... That's going to do it for today, and so I'll close this podcast once again by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Alike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us, and if you're interested in some of the stories that uh, may or may not have led you and me to where we're sharing this moment together, you can read a few of them in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available in Kindle and other ebook formats, as well as a pay-what-you-can audiobook read by me. And you can find more about that at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.